0: Welcome back to Trending in Education. Uh, Mike Palmer here, joined by uh, a special guest, uh, Logan Thompson, the author of Beyond the Content, uh, a book coming out under uh, Seven Hundred and Fifty Publishing. Logan, uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Mike. Good to be here.
0: Logan, can you uh, can you give us a quick uh, synopsis of what Beyond the Content uh, is about?
1: Yeah, in in short, it's. The way I frame it is it's tackling the other half of test prep. So what I've found both as a student and as a teacher of test prep is that only the content and strategy portions of the test are generally talked about and studied. Yet time and time again, I've found that myself or students have mastered most of that and have still not scored uh, to a level that would reflect how much they understand. So this led me, and I'm not the first to think of this, but this has led many people to think there's something else going on that's not being addressed. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is how students, all of us, deal with our own thoughts and emotions that can either help or hinder performance.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, there's lots of uh, really interesting examples from your teaching experiences around, you know, conversations you've had with folks you've taught um, to as examples of places where, uh, you know, we talk a lot about helping the whole student. Um, frequently, the, the area where a good teacher, a good tutor, uh, you know, thrives is really more in the other half that you're describing. Um, can you give some uh some of those examples uh, to us like what uh what kinds of conversations uh, have you had with your students that are uh, examples of uh, problems they may encounter with uh, with the other half with the more mindful mindful half of their prep
1: well one of my students uh, I write about her in the book, but her name's bridget and this is not too uncommon of an example, but bridget was fairly proficient in in the quantitative uh, parts of the test but she would report that she wouldn't get many of the questions right when it came to practice tests or even taking an actual test. She'd say when I read it I really understand it but when I take it and it counts I can't really perform well. So what we did together is kind of a real-time experimentation of let's see what's actually happening. Let's find this point. It's like being its like being a scientist. That's what I get to do as a tutor. And what I try to do in this book is teach people to be their own scientists. Let's watch our own internal process. So with Bridget, I started the timer and we were, it's just one-on-one, mind you. Within 30 seconds, she was crying. And of course, she wasn't able to perform, but that had nothing to do with whether she knew the content or strategy. And it turns out, I said, Well, I asked her why, uh, what's particularly scaring you? And we traced it back to um, just being timed. And I was like, well, I'm going to push back on that because I could time you to see how long it takes you to go get a drink of water. And you're probably not going to start crying. So asking those questions and tracing it all the way back. And it turns out that she had just been insecure about her ability to do math and had been teased about it in school and at work more so than reflected her actual ability in math. So what it did was trigger this deep part of her that was, that really went into self-protection mode and shut her down. So she wouldn't have to take a risk and get something wrong. But once we identified that kind of the, she saw the man behind the curtain. It it wasn't this big monster. She was like, Oh, this is just remnants of being teased. And I don't have to believe that. Mm Mm-hmm. And as soon as we named it, of course, those feelings would still come up. But I gave her some techniques, which I talk about in the book, to name what's happening in the moment and just kind of set it aside. You don't have to make it disappear, but it didn't run her. It didn't control her anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's so a great one example. Thing I will say is, that is more of an extreme example, but this happens on a minute level with all of us. Sure. And that's where it gets most insidious. It's when we don't have big enough flags like tears, right. because that's a blessing if if our body reacts that much. But most of us have these tiny moments where we just have little resistances, and those add up to keep us from performing.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great example, and uh, there's there's many of these examples throughout throughout the book, and uh, they're, they they almost indicate that some of good teaching good tutoring is almost like a therapeutic dynamic or um like a a, a guru uh acolyte kind of dynamic especially because a lot of the mindfulness does seem to be um you know eastern influence uh at times but uh but i do think there there's a real um uh process that you go through uh, to your point which is to to kind of help us become more reflective and aware of our own um uh, thought processes and how some of those uh, we have control over them and others are are sort of beyond our conscious control at least uh, until we go through the process can you talk to us a little bit about the um the driver and passenger uh, analogy which is something that you use really uh Throughout the book, and uh, I found it extremely uh, useful and uh, and I think it's something that folks can can pretty quickly grasp grasp onto and, and understand um, can you Can you give us some high level understanding about the, the the concept of passengers
1: and drivers and driver's ed sure there are if you don't mind, I want to comment on the interesting point you brought up about. Therapy versus academia because I think it's really interesting and it's something it's a I think somewhat of a false divide that I Make sometimes and it keeps students and teachers hesitant to even talk about thoughts or emotions because It gets equate thoughts and emotions get equated with oh that means it's therapy and I think it's an important question to wrestle with the approach that I take is look, thoughts and emotions are happening right now, whether we like it or not. And I sense that there's a bit of a difference between diving into what happened to someone in the past versus saying, look, what's happening right now? And if something is happening right now, while you're doing a problem, it is part of the problem. And I come at it from more of a scientific observational sense of let's just have some tools to see what's happening right now. And however people wanna categorize it, fine, but I think it's worth uh, surfacing. And to that, to, that, to that end, another reason that I and many teachers are sometimes hesitant to talk about thoughts and emotions is we can't see them on a chalkboard. Chalkboard, that's dated. We can't see them on a whiteboard. <laughs> we, it's not two plus two equals four. It's mm-hmm. harder to see. So it's this more amorphous, invisible thing that's happening. That doesn't mean it's not just as real. You know, we can't see atoms. We can't see the energy within atoms, but it doesn't mean they don't exist. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons I use metaphors in the book is just to have an easier way to conceptualize our thoughts and emotions. So this brings us back to this driver-passenger metaphor you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So what I've found is that the thoughts and emotions that are at play when any of us perform tend to have themes within each of us. I'm not talking about universal archetypes here. I'm not commenting on those. I'm not saying they do or don't exist. I'm saying individually, if any of us track a particular pattern of thoughts and emotions that happens when we're performing, we probably find several themes, maybe five to six that reoccur. And what I've caught, what I've tried to equip students with is the ability to say, okay, this theme, I'm gonna give it a name, and I'm gonna give it a persona. Now this doesn't mean it's an objective truth, it's just a way to think about that theme. So for example, uh, Bridget's theme, one of her themes was being timed. So any, and all that had implications about being teased and other, other associations, but once she recognized that feeling, as soon as a time started, she could name that passenger. And she named that passenger Big Ben. And I call it a passenger because they just kind of visit. They aren't quote, quote, quote unquote, us, but they do visit every now and then. So she called it Big Ben, and that allows her to cognitively uh, unattach, not be detached, but unattach with its power.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, we have several of these visiting us called passengers. And what I say is that passengers usually have messages that, if we take at face value, will be an obstacle to us. So, Big Ben for Bridget will say, Don't be timed. You're going to run out of time. You're going to fail. Mm-hmm. The crucial step I, I tell students to make is find the wholesome intention of these passengers. Mm-hmm. Because what happens with most students with a self-critical voice, for example, they just either don't recognize the self-critical voice and then it controls them. That's no good. Or they recognize it and then try to fight with it. And that's no good either because they're just busy fighting with themselves. Mm -hmm. But my hypothesis in this Book and in this framework is that no matter what passenger it is, it always has a wholesome intention. If you look hard enough, you will find a wholesome intention. Mm-hmm. Big Ben for Bridget, just wanted to protect her from getting hurt. My pas- One of my passengers is comparing myself to other people. I call it compare bear. And it, it compared me to to, uh, to your voice when you introduced this podcast. I'm like, hmm, is my voice that dynamic? I need a voice that has, that's that dynamic. But I'm able to recognize it. And rather than berate myself for it, I know that passenger is just trying to have me belong and perform at my best. Mm -hmm. So changing that framework is important. Now, inevitably, the question comes, if one follows this framework for long enough, it's, well, how do I know whose voice is talking? Are all voices trying to derail me or help me? And who's the real me? So in this framework, I call the quote-unquote real me, the driver. And I'm taking a leap here. I understand my definition of driver is a leap, but I posit that at the core of all of us, our driver is, for lack of a better word, good, wise, compassionate. The part of us that comes alive when we, we aren't guarded, when we're not defensive, when we have perspective, the part of us that comes alive if we see a puppy struggling, we are just more available Mm -hmm. and I train students to better get in touch with their quote unquote driver to be able to recognize and dialogue with passengers. This is not an objective truth of a neuroscientific uh, take on the psyche. They're just tools to help.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I talked a lot. (laughs) No, that was great. And, uh, (laughs) and I think we've talked on the show uh, many different times about the power of narrative and the power of analogy and metaphor. And, uh, I think the way you've sort of fleshed this metaphor out or this analogy out uh, and then actually uh, the concept of naming those voices, um, understanding that they're ultimately not malevolent and also uh, understanding that by just accepting the those thoughts uh, and understanding where they're coming from, in some ways you can, you can let them go as well as opposed to, you know, when you fight them to your point. Um, you're actually uh, giving, giving those thoughts more power. Uh, and particularly when you're framing them from a negative light and fighting them, you're then sort of triggering stress and triggering a lot of the, the, the negative aspects of a fight or flight reaction that, uh, ultimately if this is in service of your optimal performance, which, which it really is when you're talking about, uh, performing on a high stakes exam. Um, I think there's a very clear uh, through line there that, that, that I think people can very quickly uh, connect to. Um, and to your point, it's not something that's typically incorporated into uh, test preparation the way, the way it's, it's, it's commonly understood. It reminds me very much of the, um, the uh, self-improvement movement, um, social and emotional learning, uh, and the idea that uh, you really wanna teach the whole student um can you talk a little bit about those ideas and how they may or may not uh relate to uh to really what you're going after in the book because it does seem also that these themes you're talking about while they're specifically targeting uh test prep they probably have broader appeal to like because i imagine a lot of these themes are really around when i'm trying to perform what kinds of uh passengers may may get in my way so any, any thoughts on how to more, how to sort of extend this a little bit beyond test prep or, or anything that I just talked about?
1: Yeah, that's the dirty little secret of this book. You could replace test prep and the anecdotes with pretty much any genre or walk of life and it would be equally as applicable. I, and this also is probably a good time to bring up mindfulness and why the word mindfulness is even used to describe my book because the passenger driver metaphor is not explicitly mindfulness. However, it's predicated on mindfulness and it requires mindfulness to be able to even recognize what's happening in our own mind and body. Mm -hmm. So the passenger driver system is useless if we're not able to recognize who's quote driving our car at the moment, which was why mindfulness, which is uh, mindfulness, what I describe as being aware of our own internal experience and that our internal experience of course includes external because we're perceiving external mm-hmm. but it's just a, an awareness of a process that's happening and cultivating that is a tool and we can use it for any direction some people use it for purely spiritual direction of transcending what they see as the the self or the ego to become Uh, to have to lessen suffering to the nth degree. Some people use it on the opposite extreme. Snipers in the army use it. So mindfulness itself is debatably morally neutral. Mm -hmm. So in this case, I'm talking about developing awareness and a framework to help with performance on test prep, but those are layers built up and up and up. And if you go down to the bottom layer, which is just cultivating awareness, Yeah, at that last fork in the road, rather than talking about problems on the test, it can be happening right now with you and I and in in this conversation. Because as sure as you and I are talking, there are passengers talking to me about Logan, your voice is trembling, or Logan, you're you're not being as clear because you're too worried about what they're gonna think about you. Or what am I going to hang out with my friends tonight? And these different things, these different forces pulling me in different directions. Mm -hmm. Now there are two things that can happen. I mentioned this earlier. One, I don't notice those things and I just kind of get derailed without knowing it. Two, I do notice those things. I'm going to say three things can happen. Two, (laughs) I do notice those things and then I start fighting with them and then I could just get all, all caught up or three, which is what I'm trying to teach in this book, I can notice what's happening very clearly and say, oh, okay, those are just some passengers. I'm going to stay here and stay focused. I think the, the point of what I'm saying is, yes, it's very applicable. I, can't, I, I want to frame it in the opposite way. Rather than what other areas can this be applied to, I can't wrap my head around a way of being even solo reading a book where this can't apply Mm -hmm. i don't know what that would look like
0: right yeah because you know in essence we're always in the moment and when we're in the moment these dynamics that you're describing are in play you know so there are always things happening uh and it's more about elevating your awareness of those things and having um tools at your disposal to kind of uh navigate that complexity in a way that ultimately is beneficial. Um, And whether those benefits are improved performance on a test or spiritual enlightenment or uh, witty repartee on a, on a podcast, uh, they're all um, similarly framed. So uh, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying, you know, mindfulness is really beneficial in anything that's uh, performative or reflective and, pretty much everything we do is a, is in some ways performative and or uh reflective
1: i like this i talk for a while and then you just say it in a more succinct and clear way
0: oh your passengers <laughs> talking Logan. That's, I, I can't Look I, I, I you're
1: get, already applying parts of the book
0: <laughs> i have a i by the way i drive a really large bus and i have yeah. so many passengers <laughs> that that i can't even keep track of them so 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 don't even worry about uh what's going on in your head because uh because there's a whole chorus going on in mine, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I I, w- I will say on a on a personal level, the book did speak to me not just as a um, as a test prep professional and someone who's taught for years, but but as someone who's just trying to manage the complexity and the noise of life in uh, the twenty first century. Um, I was curious about that too because you did uh, at times talk about your own experiences. Um, you know, I, I found it. Uh, really uh fascinating uh when you when you were exploring what it was like to to do a silent retreat um Mm -hmm. uh are there are there insights that you sort of gained through your exploration of mindfulness uh that um that maybe are um surprising uh particularly if we're thinking about um the the interruptive technologies the screens that we live around uh the ways in which uh in many ways life is progress or technology is sort of moving us towards uh more interruptions and more distractions. And then it does seem like in your life you've sort of intentionally uh explored uh moving in the other direction, uh really away from some of those distractions. Can you talk a little bit about um what that experience was like and, and how it maybe informed the book or or just your your
1: your practice? Sure. There are a couple of thoughts so <clears throat> What you're referring to is one of the retreats I went on. I think you're referring to a three-month silent retreat that I did. And I noticed that in the absence of things that I could, quote unquote, reach for, uh, that included conversation, reading, uh, technology, and the absence of those, it felt really noisy and, and really loud and hard to navigate my internal system. And I found that I was just as stressed as I was when I had a bunch of forces acting upon me. I also found that I was just as happy as when I had a bunch of things to strive for. When I had a job and a relationship and going to a party and petting my dog, like all of those things were wonderful, but in the absence of those, my world was just as alive and dynamic just within myself. Mm -hmm. And that started to make me question The role of external things and forces so what I found is when things would get very difficult internally I realized that I had I used to depend and rely on external things including people but what ended up happening is my driver as I call it but my true part of myself awoke and supported me. I started to hear a wise voice that i had never heard before because I had never really forced it to come out. Whenever I had difficulty, I either relied on some kind of crutch like um, technology or video or even exercise can be a crutch or other people. And what happened is I, I was forced to be there for myself. So there was a resilience and a wisdom that I found within myself that I did not know was there otherwise. Now, what I also found when I came out of retreat is all of these other external things that I had thought were just meaningless. I was a little, I was a little, um, I was a little, a little convinced that like nothing else but mattered. But your internal experience, I, I thought in an extreme way, and all of a sudden, here's TV and computers and technology and worldly things and money and uh, dating, and I realized that while on retreat. I had started to see those in a bad light. But what I found when I got out is that those things in and of themselves are morally neutral. They're most often not good or bad, but what it depends on is our motivation for seeking them out. So this, this is all a preamble to my answer to how to work with technology And what I talk about and what I try to practice is the step before engaging with technology. What's it like when we feel that impulse to reach for our pocket or when we're reaching for the computer or when we're reaching to call a friend, none of those things in and of themselves are good or bad per se, but when we're reaching, are we just running away from an emotion that we're scared to feel or running away from a thought that we're scared to have? And if that's the case, that can be an invitation to, be with ourselves and build some really stamina and compassion for what we're going through in the moment. Other mm-hmm. times we're reaching cause we just kind of want to have some fun or watch a good video. Right. The thing I, I talk about paying attention to is being mindful of that motivation itself mm-hmm. to do that. It does take mindfulness practice and practicing noticing things in the moment.
0: Yeah. It reminds me also of the concept of uh, intentionality. Uh, as well. So like when you are choosing to gre- reach for your phone, you actually, it's not, it's not a automated, it's almost like unconscious habit, that right. it's something that you are actually, I am thoughtful, I'm aware of what I'm choosing to do. And now I'm choosing to to make that move,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, which I, I would, I would imagine is is, is, is helpful also to be uh, sort of in that mindset when you are taking a test. So that every choice you're making um, is something that you actually are aware of as opposed to sort of allowing things to just um, sort of take hold and sort of um, in some ways you're it's an interesting uh, mix of, you know, losing control, but also uh, maintaining it at, at, at the same time. Like you need to be able sure. to, to make these decisions, but then also realize that some of the aspects of your mental life are,
1: are really beyond your control. Sure. And the, the, tri- the, transform- the transformative part to me is when we trace, when we find ourselves in a symptom of a problem. For example, sometimes I find myself holding my phone without knowing that I had reached for it, without knowing that I'd picked it up and without being aware of the impulse to reach for it. So when we find ourselves holding a phone, unless we can trace back the cause and effects, Not much transformation can happen. But if we keep trying to be mindful, maybe we catch ourselves when our hand's in the pocket the next time. The next time, maybe we catch ourselves when we're reaching. Still, not real transformation. The next time, maybe we catch ourselves feeling a little frustrated and then reaching. And all of a sudden, we found a link. When I get frustrated, I reach for my phone. And this, to bring it back to test prep, this happens all the time during tests. We have habits of how we behave on problems based on little causes and effects. And most of the time, those are internal voices. So for example, if a student's doing a problem, and let's say they all of a sudden, one minute later, find themselves uh, trembling and thinking they're never going to amount to anything. Okay, well, that's a big leap. So you're doing a problem, and then a minute later, you find yourself trembling and thinking you're never gonna amount to anything with more mindfulness practice, you can start catching that earlier and earlier and earlier in the process before it snowballs. And maybe what happened before I'm not going to amount to anything was the thought I'm not going to get into school. Maybe before that was the thought I'm not going to get the next problem. Right. Maybe before that it was, I'm never going to be good at exponents. Maybe before that it was seeing an exponent problem. And if you're, if you start to be aware enough as a student, when you see an exponent problem, you can say, oh, okay, this is one of those things that triggers me. And as soon as you say that, the whole story is never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, we talked, I mentioned briefly the, um the whole child uh, approach to teaching, uh, and we've talked also about the whole teacher uh, approach to uh, to really transforming education. Like thinking about the challenges and the stresses of being a, a, a an instructor. Particularly, one theme we've talked a lot about is just some of the problems around K twelve instruction and some of the things that have been happening. You know, teachers, uh, teacher strikes, and and more awareness around teacher pay and some of the other challenges. Um, how has uh, mindfulness made you a better teacher? Uh, and how how can mindfulness, uh, a lot of the folks who listen to the show are either teachers or no teachers or thinking about what it's like, you know, to develop yourself uh, and your mm-hmm. ability to teach. How does mindfulness uh, impact teaching and how has it helped you uh, become a better teacher?
1: Like hands down easiest answer for me is I'm more able to have cognitive and emotional empathy. And to me, I don't know how to be an effective teacher. I've not not seen effective teaching if a teacher can't really get where a student's coming from. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a a teacher can know the answer to the problem and know that the student's not at the answer and then just kind of explains how to get to the answer. But that doesn't usually stick in my experience. What's transformative for a student is when a student says, Yeah, I see this triangle, but I'm kind of, well, maybe I could talk about this. And you start to see them kind of wonder and struggle. And then they may mention uh, 30, 60, 90 or, or something. And the ability to zoom in and attach to them both emotionally and cognitively because you've been there. Mm-hmm is crucial because then you can metaphorically go side by side with them and kind of hold their hand through it and even push them or not push them, but at least you know where they are. And what I've found is that that's impossible to do if I haven't noticed, if I haven't paid a lot of attention to my own body and mind and thought processes during struggles. Mm -hmm. If I can do that, then as soon as they're going through things, I see some signs and it, catapults me to exactly where they are otherwise i just kind of see oh there's confusion mm-hmm. but the more mindfulness i practice i'm like oh that's confusion with a hint of hope with a hint of despair with a hint of insecurity mm-hmm. and of course it's not always that accurate but at least it's a more dialed in form of empathy mm-hmm. and without knowing where a student is i don't know how to help them
0: yeah i'd love uh, i don't know if i'd heard that before uh, I don't know if I have either. <laughs> yeah, the, the combination of cognitive and emotional empathy. Uh, that's fascinating because generally I've thought of empathy as more emotional. But when, when you broke it down that way, I actually think the, the, the sort of the concept of cognitive empathy is, is really central in central to great teaching. Where like you actually, in some ways, you need to be able to let go of your own sort of uh, cognition and empathize sure. more with where the learner is, but just doing that is not enough because there's also an emotional state that's going, that that's sort of paired with that cognitive state. Um,
1: and that's I, why just a therapist is not going to be able to teach the GMAT. And that's why just a computer is not going to be able to teach the GMAT as well as a therapist. Help me with this analogy. You need both sides. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I, I think your point though, like it's, it's, sort of, I've heard a lot of talk, you know, cause we do uh we, we get very concerned about the, uh the the super the threat of super ai and the robot overlords uh you know taking Uh over but one of the counterpoints that i've heard frequently to that is that humans will seek uh shared experiences and uh shared consciousness and uh i think when you talk about mindfulness that way there's a real um level of connection that you're going to get with a human teacher who's going to understand um, in a very personal way, what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes. That's the type of thing that that is going to be difficult, uh, arguably impossible for artificial intelligence to catch up to. Uh, they can simulate it, but they're not actually going to have the same um, level of empathy that 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 a fellow human is going to have. Um, and I also love the um, the thinking around. Uh, in order to be a great teacher, you have to understand um, who you are as a as a student or who you were when you were first learning some of the concepts that you're imparting uh, to your students. Um, so, yeah, it looks like you're going to react there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, the... <laughs> There's a couple things. One, you're you're noticing of of my reaction, like you picked on on a super subtle thing that it takes some presence of, of mind and mindfulness to be able to do, which you saw in my face. And I think that's important for me to be able to have with my students as well. And one of the things with enough mindfulness practice, and this gets to one of the maybe the most important part of this whole practice in the book to me, is once a person watches their own minds and thoughts and emotions for long enough, that person will inevitably start to see that our thoughts and emotions kind of have their own schedule, their own volition. They don't ask our permission to show up. And what starts to happen is the blame and shame attached to the thoughts and the identification, if you will, with the thoughts and emotions we have, starts to dissipate a little bit because it starts to make a little less sense if I start to think, if I watch my mind say, I'm going to miss this problem, I'm going to be a failure, and then my body, my stomach tenses, if I watch that process, I didn't ask it to happen, I start to have a little bit of an interested scientist perspective and say, well, that's interesting what the system just did right in front of me. And it becomes less, I am a shameful person and I am going to fail. And once I can recognize that, I think, one of the most empowering experiences is seeing that we are not at fault for, but are responsible for our thoughts and emotions. And what that does when I talk like that to my students, they start to get a sense of, oh, maybe they're not terrible and at fault for the self limiting beliefs and emotions they're having. Because what i found is this, as long as there's a association with students and I'm talking students of all ages, I teach, um, grad school and and people going to college as long as there's a self blame for what thoughts and emotions surface that keeps the patterns fixed there's not much space for change and transformation as long as there's self blame and identification so one of the things that's helped me as a teacher better help me be a better teacher is seeing that my thoughts and emotions kind of happen on their own so I can talk about them that way. And that also helps me see students who are quote anxious people or quote uh, pessimistic people. I don't see that as a whole package deal. I just see it as a person where pessimism happens to be a visiting passenger. Mm -hmm. So if I can see them, they know I see them as a full person that just has some visitors Mm -hmm. that we can work with.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, fascinating conversation. Uh, clearly, uh, we could uh, we could go on and on, but uh, but I think we're we're getting close to the end of our time uh, with you today. We'd love to get you back, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm curious how our listeners are going to respond. I, I imagine they'll be calmer and more present after this <laughs> podcast. So so I think that, that's what we would hope for. Um, if folks want to learn more uh, about you or mindfulness, if they want to find this book. Um, what's uh, any recommendations for, for folks if they, they want to, um, first off, uh, you know, the name of the book and, and mm-hmm. uh, where folks can find it. I believe it's dropping like when this show is going live. Yeah. It's super timely. So uh, can you just remind <clears throat> us the, the name and if folks are interested where they would go?
1: Yeah, as you're, as you're hearing this, I think you you'll be able to search beyond the content by Logan Thompson on Amazon and find it. And at least right now, um i have a SoundCloud page i think you can just soundcloud logan thompson mm-hmm. and there are seven free 15 minute guided mindfulness practices oh that's great that's not it wasn't done at the same time as the book but should be up when you when you hear this
0: awesome yeah and we'd love to uh, to figure out other ways to get more folks exposed to uh to your thinking because i uh, guess it's been a really uh you know powering through the book and then uh Trying to keep up with you in this conversation has certainly been uh, illuminating for me, and uh, and I imagine uh, you know folks really do benefit from uh, from more exposure. So uh, so Logan Thompson, thanks uh, thanks so much for being on uh, Trending and Education, and uh, for our listeners, uh, we'll be back again uh, soon. And you know uh, follow us on uh, Trending and Education on Facebook and on Twitter, uh, and in your mindful practice, think about uh, think about Trending and Education we